hope everybody is enjoying their, their Christmas. And we're going to talk a little bit more this morning about something we talked about last night, the song we just sang. We went into detail last night. This whole idea of Emmanuel, we see this in Matthew 1, 18 through 23. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of Matthew, verses 18 through 23, hear now the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit." And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we spend uh, our time and our thoughts meditating upon this record of this incarnation of the eternal Son of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us, that we would truly understand the depth of the implications of such an event. What it meant then, that promise kept, that promise declared even by the prophet Isaiah hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ was born. Even, Father, declared all the way back at the fall of man that you would send a seed to crush the head of the enemy of God's people. We do pray, Father, that we would understand what all that means to us, what it tells us of you, and how we should respond to it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, somehow a panel discussion popped In my feed, which included a man I'd never heard of, uh, Martin Isles, who was part of a Christian lobby in Australia, apparently. I don't know much about him. He was there, at least the way I saw this, apparently to explain the behavior of another famous Australian, uh, some rugby player by the name of Israel Folau, who posted in his social media what some people thought to be very inflammatory statements about the need for people to repent from a sinful life and call upon Christ. I never saw his post, but I listened to this for a while. But it became apparent that he was not unclear about the fact that there is a heaven and a hell. These were hanging in the balance. As far as I could tell, all he was doing was conveying Basic, basic biblical Christianity. There's a heaven, there's a hell. The way to get to heaven is to repent of your sins and call upon Christ. Not well received by this panel. Naturally, the word hatred came up by the host and by other members of the panel. 
who did not side with Falau, they did not side with Isles. Somehow they concluded that to warn others about the prospect of hell is an insult. I don't know if you've had that experience where you're warning somebody, cautioning basic biblical Christianity that people don't hear that caution. They don't hear the love. There's a place I don't want you to go. It's called hell. People hear something else. They hear an insult. They hear, go to hell. That's, that is not what's happening here. One would think that even a worldly person, even a person who rejects the idea of God, rejects the idea of heaven and hell, just a, just a natural thinker, would have enough sense to realize that if somebody is warning you about a place they believe exists, that is not a place that they would want you to go, that it's an act of love. Now, don't get me wrong, the worldly person might view the Christian as delusional for believing in God. The worldly person, I mean, you know, Paul said the word of the cross is what? Foolishness to those who are perishing. They might view you as a fool for believing in God and heaven and hell and Jesus. But if I truly believe that there's a place called hell, it seems like everybody should recognize that it's an act of love on my part to go, I don't want you there. But in this interview, like so many others similar to it, there was an irony. The language, both bodily and verbally, unveiled that there was, to be sure, hatred on that stage and in that room. While this fellow, Martin Isles, I thought, well, I, again, I don't know much about him, but he did a good job as far as I was concerned. I mean, he was surrounded by hostility, and he was loving, and he was patient, he was articulate, he was wise, and as far as I could tell, gave a very biblical, sensible answer to the people by whom he was surrounded. But the people around him, if you just watched that interview, were seething while they are accusing him of being hateful, the venom was coming from them. It's a, it's a natural policy to accuse others of doing the very thing that you're actually doing. I don't know if people do that intentionally or if it's a diversion, but it happens all the time. And that room became thick and hot with disdain. Matter of fact, there was one uh, lady on the panel who praised, I had to look him up, I'd never heard of him, Lil Nas. Nas? Sorry. Thank you. Who did a video, uh, apparently, and I had to find it, and I couldn't even get through it, a music video, he's a musician, I guess, and of him and Satan, intimately involved. And, she, and one of the ladies on the panel was like, I think the best thing that came out of this was Lil Nas, Lil Nas, Nas? 
doing this video. And the, the Christian guy kind of looked, and he goes, you realize that's a video of him being intimate with the devil. That's where all this went. It was, it was amazingly dark. There, there is a hostility between the Christian faith and the world, between the world and the Christian faith. Another young, well-known YouTuber, Logan Paul. You guys know who that is? Young, young people are smiling, old people are apparently pretty big, whose best friend is a Christian. But I watched an interview between him and his best friend, and he's like, so angry that his friend is involved in something so vile as the Christian faith. There's a hostility here. All this to say, this whole idea of God with us, because when, to the extent that you open your mouth accurately regarding the things of God, God is there. The means by which God has chosen to enter into the arena of humanity was, number one, by Christ, but number two, by the proclamation of Christ. So when somebody like Martin Isles or somebody else begins to speak accurately regarding the things of God, God is there. But what we are beginning to recognize more and more is the presence of God is not something that people are terribly excited about. Now, I'm, I'm not mentioning this, that we might become Christian victims. You know, woe is us. I'm opening with this, that we might understand the environment that we are in. And by the way, Jesus taught about this all the time. If they hate me, what, is he, what did he say? They're going to hate you. You need to understand the environment that you're in. We talked in, we're going through Revelation, and in chapter 12 of Revelation, we see the whole incarnation. And there's a dark side of the incarnation that usually doesn't make it onto our Christmas cards. And that is the devil, through Herod, looming over the birth of Christ because he wants to kill him. And because he can't get a hold of him, he ends up killing everybody, trying to kill all these children. I mean in an effort to kill Jesus. I mean, it's a dark event. And it remained dark all his life. Jesus was born into a hostile environment, and it remained hostile until the day he died. And he's telling you, and he's telling me, plan on the same. But why why does he want us to know this? And again, again, I don't want to canonize this guy, Martin, as far as I know, I don't know how orthodox he is, but he did a good job there in not reviling in return, right? Peter says Jesus was reviled. Follow. He did not revile in return. So follow his example. Don't be retaliatory. This is something that the Lord wants us to know, that we don't answer the fool according to his folly, that we don't become like him in the engagement, And I think a lot of us think we're above that, but let me tell you, we're not. All of a sudden, we take one little step, and we're behaving like the world. And we need to be ready for that. I remember I was a collegiate coach for a while, a number of years. And there was one gym in particular, but I really didn't like going to. It was just a rat hole. And 
and it was small, and it was hot, and we didn't even have a player's bench. The, uh, the, the player's bench was the bottom row of the bleachers, and the fans were loud and obnoxious. And I'd call a timeout, and I'd go to sit down, and somebody would be sitting in my seat. <laughs> and, and, and I would warn our team. I'd go, look at you guys. We're going to go over to the school. And the moment their team does something good, or the moment we do something wrong, it's going to get very loud. And you need to not let that affect you. You need to play your game. And these young collegiate athletes, I don't worry about it, coach. I like it when people yell at me. And I'm like, okay, I've been doing this for a while. You think you're going to like it. You're not going to like it. And here's what would happen. You, we'd make a mistake. Everybody would be screaming at the guy who made a mistake. And then the guy who made a mistake, you know what he would do? He'd start pointing his finger at the other guy on his team. It wasn't my fault. It was his fault. And all of a sudden, we got turmoil within the family. I mean, professional athletes play all year long to get what? Do you know what they play all the entire normal season to get? Home court advantage. You're making $15 million a year, but you need home court advantage because you don't want somebody yelling at you. But that's just reality. We need to recognize our environment in order for us to be prepared for the encounters that we are inevitably going to have if we're even remotely bold about the Christian faith. In a lot of respects, you know, a Christian is like just a big Alka-Seltzer tablet that God throws into a vat of tepid water. Everything was nice and smooth and tepid, even a bit diseased, a little sick, and he's like, I want you in there, and everything's bubbling. And we need to be ready to do that without violating our own integrity and our own character. This very popular passage that we open with this morning culminates at the very end with a quote from Isaiah, which was our call to worship today. So, you know, six, seven hundred years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah has this quote. Then we read it in Matthew. And it culminates with this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. You're all, we're all familiar with this. I mean, Emmanuel, we talked a little bit about last night. It's a kind of a compound word from the Hebrew emino, which we get the word imminent from, the idea of here, and el, which in the Hebrew is God. God is here, God with us. And we kind of like it, right? It's on our Christmas cards, it's on posters. You know, I live in an area where everybody puts... Christmas stuff, and that is just one of those warm, fuzzy, provincial, bucolic Christmas verses that we all seem to like. It's really kind of a one-word expression of the deity of Christ, God, and the fact that He is here with us. So in Isaiah 7, we see it. In Matthew 1, we see it. Emmanuel. There's only one other place in the whole Bible where we see it. It's in the next chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8. I'm not going to get into details there, but in Isaiah chapter 8, we see Emmanuel associated with God judging Syria and Israel by the vicious king of Assyria. 
So you go from this warm, fuzzy verse, God with us in Isaiah 7, to God judging. And there we see Emmanuel again. The point here is that God with us is not always good news for everybody. Not everybody likes the idea that God is in the room. What was going on there in that Isaiah passage was that the people refused to be governed by the gentle, loving waters of Shiloh. They preferred earthly kings. We, want, we don't want a religious leader of our nation. We want kings. So they got a king, the king of Assyria. There are all sorts of passages in the Old Testament where God goes, you want a king? I'll give you a king. Let me tell you what that king is going to do. He's going to take your sons, going to take your daughters, going to take your money, going to take your lands. That king, if you don't want the true king of kings, you want that king, that king is going to take and you're going to pay. That's your option. And they said, we want to have a king like the other nations. And he's like, all right. And that's what they got. And that was God with them but not God for them. You know, we talk about separation from God, even in hell. Even in hell, you know, and I think it's a wrong way to put it, you know, you're sinful and separated. But of course, we believe that God is omnipresent, right? He's all present. If he's all present, where do you think that includes? Hell. But hell though the presence of God is not the presence of the favor of God, it's the presence of the judgment of God. But there's no getting away from the fact that God is with us. On the stage of the question and answers in Australia, God was an unwelcome guest. The loving presence of God would be among the faithful Israelites but that would include the wrathful presence of God among those who chose earthly kings. Here's a quiz for you. If you're taking my, uh, if you're here, if you're a member and you've been going through um, the revelation with me. When they chose to follow the earthly kings, if you are going to find an event in Revelation which kind of tells you what they did, what would that event be? What in Revelation do we learn is the idea of following an earthly king rather than the king of kings? You're wise not to answer. It's taking the mark of the beast. It's the idea that we have no king but Caesar. It's the idea that I want to follow earthly leaders. I want to follow a man. He's the number of a man rather than the creator. That goes all the way back. That wasn't anything new. That's what's taking place here. I guess, friends, the long and the short of it is God with us is not always a comfortable situation. We see it in, I mean, we, 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 I have to say, we do cherry pick at Christmas. We do want just, you know, peace on earth, right? That's a big one for Christmas. Of course, what did Jesus also say? I mean, and it's not a contradiction, right? I did not come to bring what? Peace. Well, which is it? 
I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. You see, true peace, which I do believe comes to the earth, comes through the divisive nature of proclaiming the truth. Have you ever been in a, have you ever been in a situation where you know what was being said was wrong, and you also knew this, if I say what I think is true right now, the evening is going to be ruined. Yeah, there's a time to speak and there's a time to remain silent. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not, I don't want to lay a big guilt trip on you like you should have said something. But you should have said something. <laughs> this is not me finding some little verse around the birth of Christ to justify my naturally argumentative disposition. And to be honest with you, even though I do debate, I don't really enjoy arguing. I enjoy peace. And the older I get, there's part of me that's becoming a grumpy old man, to be sure, but there's just part of me that enjoys kind of things being run smoothly. But you can't read the Bible without seeing this conflict. At the, at the birth of Christ, one of my, two of my favorite characters that you barely, seldom see in the New Testament, Anna and Simeon, at the birth of Christ, they bring the baby Jesus to them. And there's a comment made there by Simeon in Luke 2, 33 and 34. And Joseph, and Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him, talking about Jesus. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. For the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign which will be spoken against Yes, I mean, think about the way Mary must have felt. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul. I mean, you know, she was just a woman. It's her baby. That the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Right? The truth walks into the room, and the hearts of men are revealed. Jesus was destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Not one, not the other, both. There is no ignoring the fact that this one person had more of an impact upon the human race than any other person who ever lived, and probably any other force that ever lived, any other army that ever existed, Nobody has affected the human race as much as this, as you, you've probably seen the poem, right? The solitary life, as much as this solitary person. Who, you know, born in obscurity, lived 30 years, almost invisible, and had a three-year ministry. Three years. And yet, if you write a check today, and you put the date down, it's going to be based upon his birthday. Three years of ministry. And the entire earth determines what age we're in based upon his existence, right? It's either A.D. or B.C. You can call it B.C.E. if you want. And you know I have a little bit of a pet peeve with that. 
And I did open my mouth one time on a tour. I tried not to be mean about it, but I just couldn't help it. Maybe this was carnal of me. But the tour guide kept saying, oh, C, you know, BCE, CE, and it was new. I, it was new to me then. And I'm like going, you keep saying BCE and CE. What is that? Well, it's before Common Era and Common Era. I'm like, so what happened that changed the eras? Before what? You know? And, you know, she just kind of gave me a dirty look, and we moved on. <laughs> Three-year ministry. And we're still working to get him out of, out of it, right? We don't want our date to be based upon this one person. The presence of Christ in the world means the presence of both redemption and judgment. He came to baptize with the Holy Spirit and what? Fire. Let me push this a little bit further. You guys have, in the New Testament, you see this, the pool of Siloam, right? Siloam is the Greek version of the word Shiloh. Right? So if you study that word, you're like going, okay, Siloam is Shiloh. So they refused the gentle waters of Shiloh a minute ago, right? And they preferred the austere king of Assyria. So now we have the New Testament version of Shiloh, which is Siloam. And that's mentioned twice in the New Testament. One is the healing pool of Siloam. What's the other one? The tower of Siloam, which fell upon and killed people. So you see that theme even there. You see this idea that it's going to be this or it's going to be that. Emmanuel means God with us. Well, let me ask you this question. Is that what you really want? Do you truly desire that God be here? Because the presence of God can be great or it can be terrible. I mean, that's not just me kind of arriving at my own conclusion in Romans 11.22, therefore consider what? The goodness and severity of God. When my kids were little, <clears throat> we talked about it a little bit last night at the dinner table. When they were little, they weren't always excited about my presence. And I'll just put it this way, even though you know, they're, they're great kids. They weren't excited if, if they had done something wrong. Now, if you've done something wrong, you, you really don't want dad in the room. But there were other times when they liked having me around, when they were afraid, right? when they were hurt. I, was, I have to say, as a parent, one of my favorite times was if one of my children got hurt and they would run to me and I would hold them. It's really a great, I mean, I want my kids to be hurt and I wouldn't hurt them on purpose so they'd run to me or something. But the, this idea, and I remember one time, <clears throat> there was a man in the church, great buddy of mine, and one of my kids got hurt and he picked up my child and was comforting my child. And I'm like, hey, dude, this is my job. Like, I want to be the one who comforts my child. And that, that is the way our relationship with God is. It's kind of like, look at it. If I'm on the wrong side of things, I kind of would prefer that God 
be as distant as possible. I want to be like Adam and run away and have God go, hey, where are you? Of course, God knew where he was. But there are other times when you're seeking after God, when you're like, I need God. I'm in a lot of pain. I'm in a lot of fear. I don't know what the future holds. The presence of God with us can be either a blessing or a curse. Because when we've done something wrong, as we all have, we have not merely violated some nameless, faceless set of ethics wafting through the universe designed to protect people. When we do something wrong, we've offended a person. The person from whom those ethics and that law comes. We've offended the protector. We've offended the creator. We've offended a person. We call this person... God, if I make rules in my house designed to protect my children, the person who violates those rules, they both endanger my children, but they offend me. I remember, again, when one of my kids were, when I was, when I was single, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a big environmentalist or, you know, I'm not a member of PETA or whatever, but when I was single, if there was a spider in my house, <clears throat> I'd be like, I wonder if I could get the spider outside alive. Let it live its life. I don't need to just kill the spider. And I would make a little bit of it, but I wouldn't always do that. Sometimes I'm like, eh. <laughs> but I wasn't like, oh, I got to kill that spider, you know. But when a spider bit my very first child, I became the spider's worst nightmare. A spider in my house, you're dead immediately. We're not playing any games. This is my house. These are my kids. You're a predator. Squish. <clears throat> but that's the way, and it's not always presented this way, but that's the way the Bible presents God. Right? The Ark of the Covenant. It's a blessing. The Ark of the Covenant was a blessing to God's people, right? Right? Was it a blessing to the Philistines? Not really. They got boils. They they were figuring out, trying to figure out how to get rid of it. Remember, they're like, if we get the Ark of the Covenant, we can win battles. And they get get the Ark, and all of a sudden, the Ark is a curse to them. The Raiders of the Lost Ark, that was a movie. You guys remember that movie? Spoiler alert, of course, it came out in like the 80s. So, The end of that movie is pretty accurate. They're like, you know, the Nazis get the ark, and they're like, hey, we're going to go ahead and kill everybody with the ark. And, you know, they do this little ritual, and what happens? The ark just kind of goes, no, you're not going to use us, me, to win these wars. You're going to open, and I'm going to consume you. And we see that over and over in Scripture. We see the splitting of the Red Sea. It's a blessing to God's people, not a blessing to the Egyptians. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. It is a blessing to God's people, but it was not a blessing to those who took in an unworthy manner, those who were thoughtlessly engaging in a very sacred event. Belief in God is, is dangerous business. We need to recognize it for what it is. But of course, that leaves us with our final quandary. Because when it gets right down to it, the Bible says, no one seeks after God, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory 
of God. We read numerous times in the Bible, there's not a righteous man who walks upon the earth. No, not one. So how, how can it possibly be that God with us is Isaiah 7 rather than Isaiah 8 for you and for me? How can that happen? Because I don't want this to finish. I don't want to finish this morning. I mean, it's Christmas. I don't want to finish this morning with Isaiah 8. I don't want to turn your Christmas glee into Christmas flea. I I want it to be joyful. You see, in all of this, when we plummet the depths of the judgment of God, there's something glorious about that. When we talk all about just God and His wrath and His judgment, and we're like, boy, I don't want to hear that. I don't need to hear that. It's just deep and it's dark and all this. But I remember when it hit me a number of years ago that all of this wrath, all of this darkness, all of this judgment is what Christ endured for me. It gave me a whole new perspective on the value of understanding the judgment of God because Jesus was judged in my place. So it elevated my understanding of the Savior. It elevated my understanding of the love of God who did not leave me in my condition of being His enemy. But He took my heart of stone and He turned it into a heart of flesh. Because when it gets right down to it, this whole argument, this whole idea of of Emmanuel, God with us, the eternal Son of God becoming flesh, over and above, even what a lot of the world wants to grant, that he was a good teacher or a good humanitarian or he did all sorts of good things, over and above that, he became flesh primarily for one reason. He became flesh so he could die. He became flesh that he might be a sacrifice. He died that we might live. He became poor that we might become rich. He emptied himself of all things that we may gain all things. So when we think about the judgment of God, we don't want to dismiss it. We want to recognize this, that that judgment of God fell upon another. God didn't just say, look, I'm going to change my mind. I was a little harsh in the Old Testament. I'm a nicer, more improved God now. That is not the way it works. God's judgment fell upon that child. And if you trust in him, then he invites you to his table. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would recognize this conflict that you have ordained we be part of, that we, Father, would be ambassadors for Christ in really what amounts to be a hostile environment. And help us, Father, not to be governed by that hostility. Help us to be governed by love and patience and faithfulness and goodness and knowledge and the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. We pray, Father, that we would accurately, lovingly represent you in all these things. At the same time, help us to be bold and not to shrink back When you've called us, Father, to interject, to be part of that discussion that is redemptive, help us to be courageous, even as the apostle prayed and even requested that others would pray for him to be bold. Help us to be bold. 
But but above all those things, Father, may we ever trust in the fact that you did not leave us at the mercy of sin and death, but you loved us and you sent your Son to die for us, to rise again, and to live for us even this very moment as our high priest. We pray in his name. Amen.